I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. It is only other people who have been there who understand your experience and that you really feel comforted by, right? So, you know, it's not enough to be around a bunch of people who say, oh, I'm sorry you're going through that. It's very different when other somebody else says, I've been there. I know exactly what you're experiencing because I was there. Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg is clinical psychologist and chief of the Division of Behavioral Medicine, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center. She says that female sexual disorders can be biological, psychological, or perhaps both, and offers wisdom around treating these. While sexual health is important to our overall health, Dr. Kingsburg says that often physicians treating women do not directly ask women about their sex lives, and she recommends women take responsibility for their sexual health by starting the conversation. She offers excellent advice to career women around experiencing pregnancy and gynecological health situations. Dr. Kingsburg believes that our country does not offer enough maternity leave to women, allowing them to fully heal from childbirth and prepare for the newfound pressures of parenthood. Enjoy this open and informative podcast with Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg. Joining me today on Leading She is Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg, Chief of the Division of Behavioral Medicine, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, University Hospitals, Cleveland Medical Center, McDonald Women's Hospital. So welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Susan. Yeah, glad you're here, too. Cheryl has been at McDonald her entire career. She is a clinical psychologist. She is also professor, Department of Reproductive Biology, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Her responsibilities include inpatient and outpatient care, consultation to medical and surgical wards, clinical supervision of medical students and residents, research and teaching. Her clinical specialization in behavioral medicine and women's health issues include psychological aspects of menopause, pregnancy, sexual dysfunctions, assisted reproductive technologies, postpartum depression, gynecologic oncology, and pelvic pain. She received her Ph.D. from University of South Florida. So welcome again, Cheryl. Well, thank you. It's uh, so nice to be here in sunny Cleveland. (laughs) Is it sunny there? It's actually sunny here in Cincinnati, but it's only about 37 degrees. Uh, But it's sunny. It is sunny, yes. That's right. Well, I could take 45 minutes or more of this podcast and listing your work. You have many accomplishments, a lot of committee service, many papers you've written, publications, awards. Uh, Your CV is 62 pages long. So congratulations on a stellar career and all the things you've done to bring female gynecologic health issues, sexuality to our awareness when often it's not discussed. It's been a, a long road, and I guess when you get old enough, your your CV gets to be 62 pages long, um, but uh, that should be the, the story for everybody at, at midlife and beyond, uh, but it hasn't always been uh, so easy to do research in women's sexual health and midlife and menopause, so mm-hmm. it's, been, uh, it's been a journey, and I'm glad to see that we are making progress, but there's still more to be done, so thank you for bringing mm-hmm. this to your listeners' attention. Yes, um, I'd like you to summarize um, your career, but uh, as I was going to mention, 
you know, you're welcome. And, you know, wow, what a what a tremendous career you've had. Many of my guests are executive entrepreneurs, and we talk about, you know, gender bias, how they got there, how they did, did this in male-dominated fields. You have a top position uh, in your field, and so you are a leading woman, and, and yet we will be focusing more on your specialty and how this affects women in their lives and their careers. So um, why don't you give us some highlights, some summary of, of your career, anything you think the listeners should know? Well, you know, training to be a psychologist, um, I really was thinking about where I wanted to go in what I wanted to treat, who I wanted to treat. And, you know, early on, I really wanted to focus on the psychological aspects of medical conditions. I thought that that was, um, it was fascinating. It, it, it addressed many of my research and clinical interests. But then I realized um, that there were very few psychologists who actually were comfortable addressing sexual concerns in women. And so it really led to the marriage, if you will, of behavioral medicine and women's health and sexuality. So I was fortunate to be able to do a postdoctoral fellowship specifically in sexual medicine. So I had the training in behavioral medicine, which is also a subspecialty in psychology and then sexual function, which is also a subspecialty. And that was both male and female sexuality. But when I thought about where I wanted my career to go, I knew that I wanted to find myself um, in an OBGYN department. That was the perfect fit for my, um, my expertise, my clinical interests, my research interests. And to your point about, um, you know, sort of uh, the, the bias against women in leadership, I found myself um, being welcomed by a male chair, but mentored by a female psychiatrist that really um, introduced me to the world of behavioral medicine and women's reproductive mental health. Mm, that's fantastic. Um, in, my, in my research, I saw that you said somewhere, sexual health is critically important to the overall health and quality of life for women, regardless of age. And you cite some surveys which shows that sexuality and sexual health does matter to most women. One study found that roughly 60% of women in their 60s are sexually active, and one quarter of married women in their 70s are sexually active as well. So talk about that. Well, you know, there is this myth that there's an expiration date for sexuality in women, not so for men. Uh, and that is just such, uh, uh, you know, a misguided and I think dangerous myth uh, because women are, are led to believe that they don't deserve to, um, to ask for help if they are struggling with their sexuality as they are aging. Uh, because they're in a, you know, well, too old to ask. And let me tell you, the medical students that I teach would believe that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the things I start out when I give them their, their sexuality lecture in their second year of medical school. And I say, do not assume that the women coming in that are your mother's age are not sexual because sorry, but your mom is probably your grandmother is, and you need to really get that through your head. And this is not just the male medical students, it's everybody. Right. So there is this myth and women carry that worry themselves. So they're afraid to ask because they, well, what, you know, am I supposed to just learn 
live with my aging and my, my discomfort. And the fact is that if you ask women, do they want to be sexually active? They absolutely say yes. And sometimes it's the lack of a partner, which by the way, doesn't mean that they're not still sexual with themselves, but mm -hmm. their lack of partnered sexuality is often because they don't have an available partner. And the majority of women who are not sexually active in their midlife and beyond are not so because they don't have an available partner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. In one of your papers, you say that hypoactive sexual desire disorder, FSDs, or female sexual dysfunction, refers to the heterogeneous group of sexual disorders, including difficulties with desire, interest, arousal, orgasm, or pain that may result in personal and interpersonal distress and impair a woman's overall health and quality of life. So talk about FSDs. Sorry. FSDS, it's a plural. So female sexual dysfunctions yes. really reflect the group of or the category of sexual problems that women will experience that we have classifications for. Okay. So there are really four groups. There's problems with desire, problems with arousal. So when we go back, problems with desire would be the idea of losing your appetite, the wanting, the anticipation. And then there are problems with arousal, which is either physiologic arousal, genital arousal, so changes in genital sensation, problems with that, mm -hmm. or subjective arousal, staying in the moment, problems with orgasm, which is the release of all sexual tension experienced as pleasurable, usually, and then problems with pain with sexual activity. So those are the four categories, general categories. There's often overlap, um, and so it's not that you only get one. You may have several problems, but what we typically do when we're thinking about assessing and treating is thinking about which is the primary problem that may have cascaded into the others. So, for example, if you've lost your appetite for sex, you, you have no interest, you don't think about it, you, you, no longer, you, you, you miss the wanting, right? It's yes. wanting to mm -hmm. want. Uh, without that desire, it may make arousal more difficult because you're just not interested. And therefore, if you're not aroused, it, you may not have lubrication, which may make sex painful, mm -hmm. right? So you've got this overlap of difficulty with desire that's led to problems with arousal, sometimes problems with orgasm, and sometimes pain. On the other hand, if you have sexual pain or pain with sexual activity, you're dry or the, your tissue has changed, mm -hmm. thank you to the loss of estrogen in your vagina, guess what? You probably don't want to be sexual because it hurts. Right. So it, they, they often overlap, but it's which came first, chicken or egg, that would lead to how you would address treatment. Mm -hmm. I understand. Um and there are these reasons for sexual dysfunction. They can be, as you've said, biological or um, clinical, um, you know, your body, or they can be psychological. So talk about both. And, and sometimes both of those things are going on, right? Absolutely. So yeah. think about it as a Venn diagram with overlapping um, circles. And the circles we consider from this biopsychosocial perspective. I know it's a it's a mouthful, but it really makes sense. Biopsychosocial. Okay. Looking at the biologic factors that will contribute to healthy sexual function, which would be um, basic health status, um, hormonal status, neurochemistry, you know, neurotransmitters, all can uh, affect either healthy or dysfunctional sexual function. 
then there's psychological factors, depression, anxiety, any you know psychological or psychiatric disorder absolutely will impact healthy sexual function. We know there is a strong correlation between depression and sexual dysfunction. Yes. We absolutely do. Mm -hmm. If you have clinical depression, you are more than likely to have problems with sexuality. Mm -hmm. Right. Then we think about um, social or, or psychosocial factors, which would be or sociocultural factors, which would be religious values, um, you know, cultural beliefs that could either be enhancing of sexual function or um, prob problematic for sexual function. If you come from a very strict religious, um, you know, uh, very prohibitive sexual culture it can create some problems in healthy sexual function. And then finally, in that fourth little circle of overlapping is the interpersonal factors. And so that's the quality of a relationship a woman may be in mm -hmm. that would affect her interest or sexual function. If she has a, you know, a partner who's not a very good lover, that can certainly impact her. Or if she doesn't like her partner, <laughs> that certainly is going to impact whether or not she wants to have sex with that person. So there are, you know, the, the quality of the relationship often can overpower anybody's drive, right? You can have all the biologic drive and appetite to be sexual in the world, but if you don't like your partner, you're not going to want to be sexual with that person. Right. So we look at all those factors and yes, they can overlap, um, but we look at them and see which factors have been contributing to somebody's sexual complaints or concerns. And that gives us sort of a roadmap of how we're going to address mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Very complex, too, I'm sure. Um, complicated, but no more complicated than male sexual function. I, <laughs> I get that, you know, that all oh, women are so complicated. It is complex, and sexuality is complex, but it is not overwhelming. And it is not that women are too complicated to address. It just means looking at the biopsychosocial factors thinking about which ones are contributing and addressing them. Mm -hmm. Women's sexual health can be understood and addressed. Mm -hmm. It can. And, you know, you mentioned something that I really had not thought about, and that is as important as our sexual health is, uh, that gynecologists, primary care physicians, despite how important this is to us, often don't ask how is our sex life, right? When we go see them. And I was thinking back about my own appointments. I don't know that my doctor has asked me that. I don't know that my gynecologist has asked me that. So why is that? Why, why aren't they asking us about it? It, it, it is the great mystery. Um, we try, <laughs> we, we try, those of us in, in sexual medicine um, try to get these uh, medical students, nurse practitioners, um, PA students, uh, anybody to listen um, early on in their careers to recognize that, again, to your point very early on, you said, in, you quoted, sexual health is important to overall health. So it is trying to make sure people and healthcare providers get that message that sexual health is absolutely important to overall health and quality of life and women and men too deserve to have that addressed right. a lot of times it is seen as oh it's just a quality of life issue but it is not mm -hmm. and it is up to the provider to ask and it should be in their overall review of systems they are uncomfortable often because you know, think about your typical nerdy medical students. They're not really comfortable talking about sexuality as a concept. 
it is amazing to me that, for example, gynecologists can talk about things like smelly discharge, but they are really uncomfortable talking about the clitoris or orgasm or sexual function. They just don't, they're just not comfortable with it, and they often don't know enough about uh, how to treat it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of clinicians who are professional, who are masters at what they do, are uncomfortable asking about something they don't know about. Mm -hmm. So we try to teach them about taking a basic sexual history, and the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health actually has a process of care document that is geared towards those um, non-sexual medicine clinicians to guide them through that basic uh, sort of sexual history that just says, please just ask mm -hmm. and then refer at any point along the way. All you need to do is ask. Women are afraid to bring it up if they don't think that their healthcare provider is comfortable hearing about it. And, and you can tell if your hand is on the, if your doctor's hand is on the door as they're about to leave or their nurse practitioner and they shake their head and they say, you don't have any sexual concerns, do you? <laughs> well, that gives a message. On the other hand, if you start, if the clinician starts by, you know, sexual health is important to, to everybody's lives. I ask all of my patients and, you know, oftentimes their sexual concerns, what concerns do you have? That is such a different message. That's a perfect okay. thing to say. I mean, you know, it's almost like, you know, rent some helicopters to drop flyers around the hospitals. You know, these guys need to hear that. Not just men gynecologists, not just men primary care, but all of them. They need to they need to ask. And it's hard to as a woman to talk about this stuff if somebody doesn't isn't direct about asking. Right. It is a conspiracy of silence in that respect, mm. because because the clinician should be the one to open the door. They absolutely should be. And women feel like, well, if they haven't opened the door, then it's not an appropriate place to bring it up. And so what, what I will hear from the clinician is, my patients love and trust me. If they had a problem, they would tell me about it. Mm -hmm. And the women would say, you know, I was thinking it's not the place to ask because, you know, they asked me about other things. So if this was something they were able to address, they would ask me first. So it is this conspiracy of silence. What I will tell women and your listeners is don't take no for an answer. If your clinician is not asking, please feel free to bring it up. Empower yourself to say, my sexual health is important. If you have other complaints or symptoms, you go in to ask about that. Please ask, please ask. And if your physician, nurse practitioner, whoever is uncomfortable, find another, find another one. Yes, find another one. I'd like to talk about women who are in their careers, they're advancing, attempting to lead, get promoted, um, but we are women, and because we are female, we have a lot of different things that are going on in our bodies than men do, and not only biological or bodily things going on, but as you specialize, the psychology of this. So while there are a few things that these men have uh, which are similar or there's some overlap with men's, you know, health issues in this regard, most of these are female. And so these, uh, like I said, they can be biological or psychological, but I'm going to list some things here and it may not be a comprehensive list, but here are all of the things that females can go through during our lives, during our careers. And some of these I've had, and uh, I, I self-reference in this podcast, but I'll, I'll, uh, some of these things I, I'm not going to mention specifically that I've had. So we're, we'll go on general, general terms. But 
here's the list. Possibility of fertility and reproductive issues, depression associated with hormone imbalances, menstrual and other gynecologic issues, hysterectomies, for example, sexual dysfunction, pregnancies. We need help pumping breast milk after we've had children, postpartum depression, breast cancer diagnoses, gynecologic cancer and oncology treatments, menopause, osteoporosis, effects of aging on sexual health, and pelvic pain. Now, I'm sure I've left some things out, but these are things we have to deal with as women. So here's, here's my question as I set this up for you. Many of these things are very private, very personal, and I don't want to have to talk to my manager about them, okay? Um, but these are things going on with me that might affect my career, might affect my ability to work, might affect my satisfaction with work, but we don't talk about them. So I, I'd like you to speak to how do, we, how do we get women to embrace this part of who we are in our careers um, and not be, not be shy about it, but really know that this is what we have? And what, what advice would you give to women? One piece of advice is find a female mentor. Okay. Um, and somebody who has gone through many of the things that you just listed, not all of them together, that would be hard. Uh, but uh, find a female mentor who can help you navigate um, how you manage the additional burdens, if you will, um, that, that males typically don't have to. Are you um, talking about so women in your company or just a women mentor in general, perhaps outside? Mentor, well, certainly in your company would be even would be great because they know the playing field. Yes. But even, even beyond that, just find somebody who you admire, who you respect, don't have to admire, at least respect, um, so that you can understand the advice they give you in terms of how to navigate that. Because it, it is universal. It doesn't have to be to your specific company. Um, and some people are self-employed and some people are working in large companies, uh, medical settings. But some of the things you, you described, for example, um, infertility and assisted reproductive technologies, the unfair burden is often on women because even when it is male factor infertility, mm -hmm. guess who's the one having to get many of the treatments? Right. It's going to it's be the women. Her. Right. Right. And so, and same with pregnancy. It is their baby if it's a heterosexual couple. Um, but it is she that is now pregnant or, and, and breastfeeding and having to deal with all of those things. So there are um, reproductive hormone-related issues that are specific to women. You also talked about premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is specific to women, um, and postpartum depression. Uh, there certainly are uh, some data that would support postpartum depression in dads because of the life stress, uh, but the hormonal impact on neurotransmitters um, is in women. Yes. Same thing with menopause. So many of the same issues uh, that put women at risk for premenstrual dysphoric disorder, postpartum depression, and menopause-related mood changes are very similar. And unfortunately, some of the same women who are at sort of vulnerability to those hormonal shifts on their mood and function um, are going to be the same ones who have, you know, PMDD, postpartum depression, and menopause-related changes. It is not that everyone has to, but it certainly is a pretty significant rate. And so being forewarned, knowing that you are vulnerable to them um, is 
is formed so that you can help um, get some help either again psychologically or even medically with managing that those hormonal changes uh, you don't have to you don't have to do everything the hardest way possible you can get help for that mm -hmm. and to find those coping mechanisms those strategies to help you through those those sort of reproductive hormone related changes mm -hmm. so get a get a female mentor and you're saying that that we you know we we don't have to come into our workplace and say to our managers, look, I've got postpartum depression. I'm just about to have my period away. These are personal things. You can't say that, but we are going through them, right? We bring that person who is not feeling that well into the workplace. Yes. Now, I wish as a, as a society we had more uh, external support yes. for, uh, for women's health conditions that are sort of a normal part of our uh, of our life cycle, um, and we don't, and women uh, often have to sort of overcome them um, and do that quietly, quietly. and silently. Mm -hmm. um, so that is not fair, but it is, uh, it is. It it's is the, the reality, and I would consider myself a feminist, and, and I've kind of come into the workplace, into my career, and said, don't treat me differently just because I'm a woman. Um, or I or I don't want my opportunities to be different because, you know, I don't want people to say, well, she's, you know, she's a woman, she's 30 years old, she'll probably be getting pregnant soon, or, you know, maybe she's having menstrual, pro whatever. I don't, I don't, I want to come in sort of perfectly equal, but the fact of the matter is that I'm not equal. Biologically, I'm different. Psychologically, I'm different. So what would you say to that, that you know, that women don't, and, you know, be, being the feminist that I am, I mean, I want to be able to come in and be equal, but there are some things that make me not equal and maybe not feel as well as I could bring my best game to the, to the office because of these things going on that are unique to me. Well, I, equal is not, or not being different is not less than, so okay. let's say that. Okay. Um, it is just different and we, we manage and navigate differently. Um, and I think women who have succeeded have figured out that um, it's not about feeling less than. It is about, you know, figuring out strategies to work through those changes. We do often have to work harder than our male counterparts um, when we are dealing with things that should be on an equal par. Parenting is, a, you know, obviously a prime example if you see, you know, men, you know, walking in the park with their baby, their great dads, and, you know, women are invisible, of course. Um, so there are double standards in yes. how we appreciate those changes or, you know, uh, paternity leave or maternity leave. Uh, but in our society, we, we barely give women maternity leave. And so women are coming back, breastfeeding and trying to pump um, and then, you know, have have sleep deprivation, whether that's with a new baby or whether it's with menopause. Um, and so there are challenges there that we, I, I think women should be entitled to um, address in their workplace, but oftentimes it goes unsaid and mm -hmm. it's working around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I did in my career, that, that I experienced a lot of these things, but I hid them. And I coped with them on my own, you know, and I was, it was pretty lonely. And, uh, you know, I felt pretty isolated. Um, but other women I know were going through the same thing, and they are today. Um, 
So but they didn't have your podcast, Susan. They didn't so, have my podcast. Yes. <laughs> Now they know. (laughs) We have a lot more information out there. We just need to reach women. And so what you said was, I felt alone and isolated. And and go back to my, if you could find a mentor or other women, you know, the, the old adage, misery loves company is not true. The adage that's accurate is misery loves miserable company. Because it is only other people who have been there who understand your experience that you really feel comforted by, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, it's not enough to be around a bunch of people who say, oh, I'm sorry, you're going through that. It's very different when other somebody else says, I've been there. I know exactly what you're experiencing because right. I was there. Yeah, very good advice. I uh, wish I'd had a female mentor back then. Um, but one thing you mentioned, I'd like to go there, and that is you have an opinion about maternity benefits in companies. What would you say about maternity benefits in companies? Um, are they fair? Are they right? What would you say? Uh, fair to whom? Um, I don't know. You know, I think that in other countries, the, the maternity leave is much longer, um, and I think to women who then are trying to recover from either a cesarean section or, you know, uh, even the vaginal delivery and getting their bodies back, getting their hormones on track, um, you know, exclusively breastfeeding if they can. That's a lot um, while, you know, trying to make sure that, you know, the, the baby is in good hands. Right. Because again, there is a double standard on who's the primary caretaker and who ultimately is responsible. And we've seen that, you know, thank you to COVID um, and, you know, the, the, you know, children at home and, you know, who's going back to work. There has certainly been a double standard for women, but just in terms of maternity leave, you know, I often see women who have to go back at six weeks Mm. and that's just really hard. It is hard. hard. What do you think? And I, 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 I hear what you're saying about the COVID part. I mean, that's the great departure, right, of, of women leaving the workforce is just like, hey, I'm home working and I'm home taking care of kids. I just can't do this anymore. And they are leaving. Uh, they're not. It's kind of a quiet departure in a lot of ways. But millions of women have left because of that. Um, and it's it's just, you know, it, it, many, many men don't do 50 percent at least 50% of what has to be done around, you know, home care and child care still is still is that way. And let's, you know, I do not want to make this all about heterosexual couples either. Yes. There are certainly lots of uh, single family uh, or single women uh, raising families um, or same sex couples. But, um, you know, if we're going to go with the the gender difference here, um, Mm -hmm. there, there tends to be a double standard for uh, women or females versus males. Yes, indeed. Yes. Um, you, uh, well, let me, let me go here. Um, we talked about this when Viagra, the drug for uh, men, uh, erectile dysfunction came out in 1998. You talked about the Viagratization of America um, and uh, erectile dysfunction, you know, is such a big deal to, men that our our country began to focus on that and it gets a lot of attention versus female um you know uh sexual issues um 
but but talk about talk about that. What happened, and what do you, what do you see there in terms of gender around? So, you're, as you noted, um, Viagra was the first PDE5 inhibitor. That's the treatments for male erectile dysfunction. It was approved in 1998. So that was the first one. That was uh, uh, Viagra or Sildenafil. Um, and there have been several since then. But at the moment when it became approved, all of a sudden it became okay to talk about male sexual dysfunction because there was something easy to treat it. So clinicians could ask because well, I can just give you a, you know, I can give you Viagra. Um, and, uh, and so even research sort of followed along um, with, you know, women lagging about 20 years behind in terms of any research. But I have to say that, you know, the primary sexual dysfunction for aging men is erectile dysfunction, which is really genitally focused. It's about blood flow to the penis. Right. And therefore, uh, a relatively straightforward concept for treatment. Whereas the primary sexual dysfunction for women of all ages is what you talked about before, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. A lot harder to say than erectile dysfunction. And by the way, we used to call it impotence, but that was that seems so pejorative and negative that we changed it to erectile dysfunction, indeed. Uh, but hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is now HSTD, is the loss of interest in wanting to be sexual. Right? That is the primary sexual complaint of women of all ages affecting about one in 10 of all women. Hmm. Now, I will, get, I will tell you, um, I get some pushback from, I think, what I would call misguided feminists that looking at pharmacologic treatments for hypoactive sexual desire disorder somehow is over-medicalizing a problem and pathologizing or disease-mongering. Nobody said that about erectile dysfunction. Right. But all of a sudden, because it's about women and desire, um, you know, the idea was, well, you know, it should be psychological or, or, or you should treat it only psychologically or, you know, it's a natural part of aging that women will lose their interest. So why are you trying to pathologize at Kingsburg? And my response is, because I see women every single day who walk into my office and say, I used to have drive. I used to enjoy wanting sex. Mm -hmm. And now I've lost that and I really miss it. And I am distressed by that. Yes. And if you're not distressed, we're not treating it. But if you are distressed, why wouldn't we want to treat that? Yes. It is very similar to depression. Think about desire like depression. The key feature of depression is loss of interest in things that bring you pleasure. You feel flat. You're not motivated to do things in the world that you used to enjoy. With HSDD, it's about not wanting and feeling flat about sex. And that's, that's very distressing to women. Mm -hmm. So when we think about treatment, think about depression. We, we can treat depression with cognitive behavior therapy. I do it for a living. I think it works really well. But for some women, that's not going to be enough. For some women, they need an antidepressant, so a pharmacologic option. And for others, the combination works best. Same thing for hyperactive sexual desire disorder. Harking back to my biopsychosocial model, for some women, it is primarily a biologic issue. There is a neuroendocrine imbalance. And for those women, we want a pharmacologic option. For others, it's psychological or it's interpersonal. And for those, I love to do my psychotherapy with them. And for some, the combination works best. Why would we not want to have options for women? And to say we're, you know, women were pathologizing or we're selling them something they don't need. Women are smart. 
police. Yes, we are. Thank you. They are not going to take something that doesn't work for them. Right. We can't get women or people in general to take medicines that we are absolutely necessary. So people are not going to take something that doesn't work for them. Right. And thank goodness that you had cited a couple of drugs that are out there uh, which address sexual desire in women. Valisi is one. Is Do I have that right? Vilesi. Yeah. Okay, and, and then uh, the other and, one is A D D Y I. How do you pronounce yes. it? Addy. Okay, so they're they're out there, right? Yes, and uh, and again, I was part of the uh, the trials and the development of these drugs. So full disclosure, I absolutely um, consulted with both these companies. Again, I think it's great that they would include a psychologist to want to look at the clinical endpoints that would be relevant to women with low desire um, and evaluating whether it's it, it works for them and whether it makes sense. But um, but again, I get the pushback that says, you know, you're, you're disease mongering. And I say, this is, we don't say that about men and sexual dysfunction no. and finding treatments for them. And again, it's not for everybody. Some women don't need it at all. And some women absolutely do. We want uh, treatments for them. I will say one of my complaints about the whole um, uh, drug treatment process for women is that uh, these are non-hormonal treatments. Vilesi mm-hmm. um, and, and Abby are central nervous system um, drugs. Hmm. They are not hormonal, yet there is a, uh, they are only approved in premenopausal women. And so postmenopausal women Although we have some data, particularly for Addy, that it works in postmenopausal women, it is not indicated, therefore it won't be covered by insurance for them. And so until those treatments get studied in clinical trials for the FDA, they are not approved, and therefore they are off-label, and only premenopausal women have an indication. Mm. So. More, more not only gender bias, but really ageism in, in that case. And just, you know, it's this societal regard for, you know, whether women in their 50s, 60s, 70s are sexually active or even want sex or even deserve to be treated and have it paid for. It's, it's really unconscionable. Well, can we talk about those women for one minute with yeah. another issue, which is, mm-hmm. <clears throat> first of all, for, for postmenopausal women, we also know that testosterone um, replacement or testosterone um, uh, treatment has been shown to be effective in postmenopausal women with hypoactive sexual desire disorder. There is a, a global consensus statement, I'm an author on that, uh, from 12 international societies that supports the use of testosterone, although it is off-label, meaning it is not approved in the U.S. for the treatment of hypoactive sexual desire disorder in postmenopausal women, we have a lot of data that shows that it does work in some women and it can be, uh, it, it is recommended as a treatment for that condition. Um, but the other issue with postmenopausal women is what we call GSM or genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really getting to that fourth category of sexual problems of pain, right? Pain with sexual activity. So GSM, genital urinary syndrome of menopause, just like ED took the place of impotence Mm -hmm. because it was such a pejorative term. GSM was, uh, was, was renamed from vulvovaginal atrophy in 2014 Um, for North American menopause society and the international society for the study of women's sexual health. 
said this is we need to change the terminology for three reasons. One is um, vulvovaginal atrophy does not reflect the fact that the loss of estrogen in the uh, urogenital tract affects more than just the vagina and the vulva. It affects the whole urogenital tract, meaning the bladder as well. So all of when you think about the vagina and the loss of estrogen, the bacterial composition changes. And, uh, and so when there is more bad bacteria than good bacteria, thank you to loss of estrogen, it can go right up to the urinary tract. So you've got more UTIs, um, some bladder issues, more frequency, urination. So that's one reason. Secondly, women don't really like the concept of atrophy. So that was a very uncomfortable thing to tell women, by the way, your vagina is atrophy. So that was, so, that was kind of jarring. And third, up until recently, you could not say vagina in media. So, um, you know, on television, um, news reports, or even radio, you could not say vagina. And therefore, how are we going to talk about this condition if you can't say the term vagina? I can't tell you in the old days, Susan, how many times I would go to do an interview and they'd say, well, you know, feel free to say whatever you want, uh, Dr. Kingsford, but don't use the term vagina. <laughs> and so there, so, you know, there you go. Uh, so GSM, genital urinary syndrome of menopause was coined. So uh, just like ED is more, you know, sort of comprehensive, so is GSM. And the fact is that while most women know about hot flashes and night sweats, what most women don't know is that anywhere from 50 to 80% of women over time will develop GSM, which will cause the tissue in their vagina to thin and, and sort of um, mm -hmm. become dry and, and very, what we call meaning easily uh, injured. Mm. And it is so easily treated with local hormones using lubricants, moisturizers, mm -hmm. but oftentimes local estrogen, which is not systemically absorbed to keep the vagina healthy. But mm -hmm. since again, clinicians aren't asking about it, they're not asking their 60 year old patients, tell me about your sexual life, right. or, you know, are you having pain with sexual activity? They're not asking and women are not sure. They don't even know it's related to menopause, so they don't right. even know to ask about it. Yeah. So it's a conspiracy of yeah. silence. Hmm. So let me tell your listeners, please, if you have dryness, any discomfort with, with uh, sexual activity, or any of those changes in urinary symptoms, please ask. Yes. Please ask. Yeah, you have an obligation for yourself to do that. Um, as we close out here, I've got a couple more questions for you. What, um, what would you say to a young woman who is considering starting her career in your field what uh what does that career path look like for her that may be different for you i mean gender bias or whatever what would you say to her any maybe there's a long list of what you would say but what would you what would you summarize for her i'd say welcome i i think it was it, it's been a phenomenal uh it's been a phenomenal ride i've loved every minute of it i have never regretted my career choice one little bit um and so i would say you are choosing a wonderful profession and in fact i do have uh, a colleague that i brought on uh, about three years ago who was in that you know sort of early 30s phase um and and I, i'm just so thrilled that uh, women are interested in this field reproductive mental health is perfect and i will say that while I certainly have a lot of male colleagues, 
um, many women who uh, have sexual concerns or menopausal issues or, or women's reproductive health often feel very comfortable talking to women about yes. uh, this. Yeah. And so That's true. Um, it's, it's a wide open field. Uh, we need more women in sexual medicine and women's reproductive um, uh, mental health. So mm-hmm. I'd say we got plenty of uh, opportunities for you, both clinically, research, and teaching. Yes. Cool. Um, last question. Um, I had heard from uh, Dr. Holly Peterson, who I hosted on the podcast, that uh, you are very funny. And uh, that uh, in something I read or a little video you had at one time, you wanted to be a comedian or stand up comedian. Is that right? Well, I had always admired Joan Rivers. Yes. And I thought when I was a kid, I, I want to be Joan Rivers, uh, but I'm not that funny. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, unfortunately, you know, since I couldn't be that, so that would have been my other career choice, um, it would, would have been to be Joan Rivers or later on Ellen DeGeneres. Um, but since I'm not quite that funny on my feet, I had to settle for, uh, you know, sort of one joke at a time, uh, clinically or in a talk. And so, um, that there you go. Thanks to my not being funny enough, I have um, <laughs> entered into this career. Well, I did. I uh, had the opportunity for uh, for a nonprofit that I'm part of, a Women Writing for a Change, to do stand up two different years for as a fundraiser, and um, I did a whole bit on um, on mammograms, and people were rolling. Uh, I would love to hear it. <laughs> I will find it and send it to you. It is, it, it's pretty good. It, it uh, you know, just all about what we go through, you know, when we get, have our mammograms and and so forth. But uh, it was a lot of fun. I enjoy it too. And I've got some more material around some of the things you've talked about here, but I'll kind of leave it there. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I can't wait. Yeah. Well, Cheryl, thank you for joining me today. It's been great. And um, congratulations on an incredible career. I'm impressed with with, with you and everything you've done. And um, I've learned a lot. So thank you. Well, thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, uh, podcasts like this that move the, the needle forward. So thanks for, uh, for educating your listeners. Fantastic. Yay. Great. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders. 